you can discover things about the Andean culture of Peru that are even a surprise to visitors from other countries in South America. They come up to Peru and they're, they're struck by the truly Indian culture that we have. Coming up, Marie Arana fills us in on the country where she grew up. When American Linda Leeming visited the happiest kingdom of Bhutan, she was impressed by the beauty of the Himalayas and by the artist that would become her husband. She tells us about her learning curve as a foreign spouse. If you marry into a culture, you have to be prepared to get laughed at. And a guide from Spain tells us how Barcelona blossomed into a popular tourist destination after it hosted the Summer Olympics in 92. Once the Olympics were done, they were gone, but that put Barcelona in the world map for cruise liners. It's the best of Barcelona and cross-cultural connections in Peru and Bhutan on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. You can experience my favorite European people, places, and stories in my newest book, For the Love of Europe. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. Some cities became a little too popular with visitors before the pandemic shut down tourism. Coming up, we'll refresh our travel wish lists with the help of a Spanish tour guide. He'll point out what's helped make Barcelona a hit with travelers as the city figures out how it wants to reopen to the world. We'll also look at what it's like to reinvent yourself in a different culture with an author from Tennessee who made a new life for herself halfway around the world in Bhutan. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with an insider look at how Peru stands out from the rest of South America. It's where author and journalist Marie Arana grew up before her bicultural family moved to the U.S. She writes about her dual identity in her book American Chica. Marie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Rick. Good to be here. I'm just really excited for you to be my tour guide because Peru is a country I know very little about. Before we get into this discussion about the people of Peru, just give us a a quick one-paragraph description of uh, your homeland. You know, for a country that's the size of, roughly the size of California, not much bigger, it is an astonishing place because it has just every kind of landform you can imagine, Rick. It has the coast, it has the desert, it has the jungle, it has the mountain, uh, has the plains, it has all of that. And if you fly over Peru, this is amazing to me, you go from one landform to another landform just in the course of you know a few seconds. <laughs> it's, it's a really astonishing place geographically. When you compare Peru to the other South American countries, how would the people of Peru see themselves uh, compared to the countries that surround them? Well, you know, we are an Andean nation, and the Andean nations are, of course, Colombia and Ecuador and Bolivia. These are the the spine of the Andes, of course, runs through the whole continent. But Mm -hmm. we we call ourselves an Andean people because we are a mix, a mestizo mix of indigenous and white and black in in a very different proportion, shall we say, to the people of Venezuela, which are are less Indian, less indigenous, more mm-hmm. more black. And the Colombians as well, which has a much larger population of blacks than we do in Peru. We do have Afro-Peruvians along the coast who have been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. But, mm. you know, we are just Distinguished, I think, by our Indianness, and I think that you know the people of Argentina, mm-hmm. the people of Chile, the people of Paraguay, they come, they come up to Peru, and they're they're struck by the truly Indian culture that we have. Okay, so when you say in Latin America, you've got the uh, 
indigenous people, the Indians, you've got the black people from the, the slave heritage, and you've got the Europeans, which would be the white Latin Americans. Right. And the Asian population. And okay. uh, we have a very strong Asian population, in fact. Now, your upbringing gives you this position where you can be somebody who shines a light on this. Your your father was Peruvian, and your mother is from the United States. So you've got this cultural divide in your family. And I, I just find it so interesting in your books, you draw from this in your Silver Sword and Stone book, which talks about these dynamics across Latin America. You talk about this. What was the cultural challenge within your own family? And then how did that kind of shine a light for you on the broader cultural divides uh, between America and Latin America? Well, it's interesting because when my growing up in Peru for the first 10 years of my life, my mother was the only American I knew. And my whole family, there's a very warm embrace of a Latin family. And then there was this odd person who didn't really fit in and didn't really speak good Spanish and was sort of stood out as, as being very different and felt, you know, somewhat alien to the culture mm -hmm. and was. And then when we moved to the States and immigrated to the States, and then my father became that odd person. And I was fitting into both sides because we were raised with these two parents who made us fit into both sides. But they became the odd people out in, mm. in the course of their own mm -hmm. immigration stories. But it sort of sharpened my sense for wanting to explain one side to the other. Marie Arana is our guest right now from her home studio on Travel with Rick Steves. Marie writes about her origins in Peru and her bicultural family identity in her book American Chica. Today, Marie works in Washington, D.C. as literary director for the Library of Congress, and she directs the National Book Festival. Marie's also written a major biography of Simon Bolivar. Her most recent book, Silver Sword and Stone, is out in paperback. It critiques Spain's colonial legacy in Latin America and the cultural divide between North and South America. Her website is mariearana.net. You know, Marie, you left Peru at the age of 10 to come to the United States, but you've gone back to Peru regularly. When you go back to Peru, what do you realize, ah, yeah, this is a different culture. This is something I really miss and appreciate compared to your life in the United States. Well, you know, I still live in Peru in a way because uh, my husband and I spend three or four months of the year in Lima. Uh, we get away from the winter here since we're both writers. We go down to mm -hmm. Peru and, and we write there. So I'm, I'm very connected to that culture. And uh, there is a very distinct difference. Um, there is a kind of a kind of formality in Peru that, particularly in the city of Lima, there's a kind of formality. People treat each other differently. I've always thought of uh, Americans as being presented as being very friendly. But, you know, you can walk down a street in a big city of the U.S. and never look somebody in the eye. And in, in Peru, there's, it's a warmer culture. People greet each other. They say good morning. Uh, when you walk up to somebody, you wouldn't say, where is the grocery store? You would say, excuse me, I'm sorry to trouble you, sir. Would you tell me where the grocery store is? So there is a little preambular thing that you do, you know. Give us a quick rundown on the different indigenous groups that we'll encounter while we're in Peru. Oh, my. They're the, the two strongest groups are the Quechua and the Aymara. And the Quechua speakers and the Aymara speakers, they have different languages. There are many, many different indigenous languages in, in Peru and quite a few in the jungle as well. There are tribes that have their own languages, their own cultures. 
But the, the two main ones are the Quechua and the Aymara. And you can even see the difference in physically. The Quechua are sort of, they, they have uh, sharper features. The Aymara have mm -hmm. round, rounder faces. You can actually mm -hmm. see the, the physical difference. The, the Quechua who have lived in the mountains for so long have these wonderful sort of developed chests in the, the way that an opera singer does because their lungs operate differently. And you can really tell the difference between the indigenous people or the just Peruvians, the mestizos who live on the shore and those who live in the mountains, but just by virtue of their chests. So those would be, I would imagine, the two big indigenous groups. And then you've yes. got Afro-Peruvians along the coast, and you've got a lot of Europeans probably in the big cities. Right, exactly right. And the Africans are on the, on the coast, uh, and historically all over Latin America on the coast, because the Spanish colonial powers understood very quickly that the the indigenous people could not work in the fields in the way that they wanted someone to work on the sugar plantations and the indigo mm. plantations, mm. the coffee plantations, because they couldn't stand the, the heat and the field work. So they sent the uh, indigenous up into the mountains to do the mining. So the Africans, who were very, very used to the hot weather and to field mm -hmm. work, were kept along the shore. So that was, you know, history created that distinction. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Marie Arana about the people of Peru, her homeland. And uh, her book is Silver, Sword, and Stone, Three Crucibles in the Latin American Story. Marie, we're, we're just about done with our visit to Peru with you. But as our tour guide, what would you do to broaden the itinerary beyond visiting Machu Picchu to be sure we get a, a nice representative experience in Peru? Well, I would, I would definitely say, and this has always been a, a puzzlement to me because for so many years, uh, people would come to Peru and they would just completely neglect Lima and, and, and hop over to Cusco and, and Machu Picchu, which are indeed beautiful. Cusco is just a wonderful historic city. And Machu Picchu is just a, a fabulous natural mm -hmm. wonder. Uh, but skip over over Lima or Trujillo or Arequipa. And I have to tell you that within the last 15 years or 20 years, the Peru has become a capital of culinary arts. Uh, the cuisine of Peru, which is a fusion of indigenous and Afro-Peruvians and Chinese and Asians. We have a lot of Japanese and Chinese and European culture. And that fusion of food is so popular and so it's very special, very special kind of food. And you will find that in the cities where you will not find it in the in the beautiful mountains necessarily. And, you know, Arequipa is an intellectual center. It has a wonderful university. It has always been a place where, you know, the smart people were. We've been talking with Marie Arana. Her book is Silver, Sword, and Stone, Three Crucibles in the Latin American Story. Marie, it's been so nice talking with you. It's gotten me fascinated with uh, thinking about it when we can travel again to go down to Peru. I'm just curious, next time you go home to Peru, a home in a sense that uh, you spend several months a year there, and you get settled in, what will you and your husband do to just kind of celebrate you're there? What, what is the sort of ritual that, yes, now we're back in Peru? Oh, you know, every time our plane lands, within four or five hours, we are down at a restaurant called Al Fresco, and it's a, what we call a cevicheria, where they serve ceviche. Ceviche should only be served on midday, so you always go for lunch. So and what is ceviche? Ceviche is fish right from the water. I mean, they've caught it that morning. That's the reason why you have to eat it for lunch. They catch it that morning off the coast of Lima, mm. and it's cooked in, in lemon and lime. Mm. 
and it is absolutely divine. And, mm. you know, the cevicherias in Lima are absolutely fabulous. That's where we go right away to say, we're home mm. now, we're here. <laughs> that is a good travel tip for all of us. Marie, thanks so much. I hope that you have a ceviche in your near future. Thank you so much, Rick. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. For some of our listeners, if they aren't making travel plans, they're fondly remembering where they've been. Here's a few travel haiku they've written and sent to radio at ricksteves.com. Beverly Sizemore from Albuquerque, New Mexico, will always remember the fun of having a sauna in Finland. With this haiku, she wrote, Sweat, sting of birch leaves, shriek of joy as skin meets lake beneath the midnight sun. J.D. Markman from Clever, Missouri, has a layover in mind in their travel plans. Fly me to the moon with Ireland stops before me. I will be there soon. Anne Gasperich and her son from Pittsburgh, PA, sent haiku to her sister while road tripping through Yellowstone National Park and the Grand Tetons. Here's a few examples of what they wrote. Traffic jam ahead. Cars stopped all over the road. Oh, it's just a deer. Did I see a moose? Stopped the car and turned around? Oh, it's just a log. No haiku today. No more counting syllables. We just need a break. Next, we cross over cultures with an American who made a new life for herself in Bhutan in the Himalayas. And in a bit, we'll plan a getaway to Barcelona. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Tucked away in the mountains between India and China, the remote Buddhist country of Bhutan is a nation with no traffic signals. It aims for a high-value, low-impact type of tourism, which requires visitors to go on prepaid official tours. American-born Linda Leeming fell in love with the country and eventually with a well-known Bhutanese artist. She writes about her life in Bhutan in two books, A Field Guide to Happiness and Married to Bhutan, How One Woman Got Lost, Said I Do, and Found Bliss. Linda, thanks for being here. Thank you. So your book on the cover says, And Found Bliss. How did you find bliss in Bhutan? (laughs) I fell in love with the place and the people, and I guess subsequently my husband Namge. I was just bowled over by the beauty of the place and how the people just lived and went about their daily life slowly, deliberately. I was really just willing to do just about anything to to stay there. I convinced the government to let me go and teach English. I was a little bit of a washout as an English teacher, but I did learn their language. I learned Zonka as a result. Hmm. But and then three years after I was there, I married a co-worker, And it was the first marriage for both of us. And um, I don't know, I can't say every moment has been bliss, but we're pretty happy. In your book, you talk about about your relationship with Namge, and you also talk about your relationship with the country. And it's sort of just being there is is something that is uh, just something special about it. It's it's this surreal, high-altitude world. You talk about Hmm. walking above the tree line in the morning when when a herd of yak are, are in the mist. And uh, do you remember that in your book you talked about walking uh, just uh, kind of with these ghostly yak around you and you're just uh, greeting a new day? Take us on that little walk. Yes. Well, um, when you're walking among a herd of yak, it's really important to look down a lot 
But, you know, frankly, I don't recommend walking among yak because they're really big and they're really, I don't think they're like super bright. I don't really trust them. But it is just an amazing experience. In Bhutan, it's just, um, I don't know, I guess as a writer and as a, I don't know, somebody who was interested in different ways of being, you can hardly get any more different than the life in Bhutan and life in the United States. Mm -hmm. Both are great, mm -hmm. but um, uh, one thing that I really like about Bhutan is I like myself better in Bhutan. It's really easy to be nice there. They're Buddhist. They're not really mad at anybody. Um, and I did realize, um, you know, my teaching experience aside, with just a little bit of effort, you can affect change. And even if you just visit there, you can, um, the Bhutanese are very interested in, uh, and they absorb a lot. I guess because it's a tiny country, they mm -hmm. have to be outward looking. So they really pay attention. If you go there, they'll study you. They'll, mm -hmm. they'll figure you out, you know. You mentioned in your book, an American becoming Bhutanese is humbling. It's like you, you, you make a fool out of yourself mm -hmm. trying to figure it out. <laughs> yes. Tell us a little bit about this cross-cultural living. If you marry into a culture, you have to be prepared to get laughed at. And maybe not in a malicious way, but people will, um, you'll do things pretty much on a daily basis, if not an hourly basis, that are different and quirky. And, uh, you know, uh, oh gosh, when I first married Namgate uh, 20 years ago, we were living in a flat in a place near the school where we both taught. And the kids would literally line up in front of the place just to watch me come down in the morning, you know, and, and make my little walk to school. They were so intrigued by me. Now they've seen more uh, Westerners, but it really was, a, a, it was something kind of to cope with. If you move to a new culture, I feel like you have to adapt and you have to go more than halfway. I guess you could ask my husband if, you know, he thinks I go more than halfway, but... I do think you have to, um, you know, food, everything, everything you do, you have to kind of adapt to. So what was the biggest adjustment for you as, a, as an American, trying to fit the Bhutanese tempo of life? Sitting down and shutting up. Hmm. Uh, hmm. I mean, I guess that's putting it kind of crudely, but just not talking so much. The Buddhists believe that if you talk, you know, just in the United States, you know, to be polite, you talk about the weather, you know, you say hello, you mm -hmm. you strike up a conversation, but it's opposite in Bhutan. You don't talk if you don't have anything to say. So there's a lot of silence. It sounds like you use Buddhist and Bhutanese almost interchangeably. Is mm -hmm. it Bhutan or is it Buddhism that is so uh, unique and attractive to you? I think you can't talk about Bhutan without talking about Buddhism. They, I think you're absolutely right. There are almost interchangeable. It is a Buddhist country, right? and it's so much of who they are. It's kind of, it permeates the place. You know, you kind of can't help but pick up a lot of the philosophy, help but don't hurt. It's who they are. So part of it is living in the moment, I would imagine, not having a watch. I, I remember when I was, one of the most wonderful experiences when I was in Nepal was just not wearing my watch. And for days, I had no need for a watch. And then I remember one day in, in Kathmandu, I had an appointment somewhere. And it really, it really burdened me. My whole, my whole day was messed up because I had an appointment somewhere. And that was just fascinating. 
That's so true. I mean, living in the moment, being in Bhutan, even if you come as a a, a guest, it really does sort of force you to live in the moment because everybody else is living in the moment. They're not big planners. That's another thing as an American. We plan everything, and that's quite nice. But it's also nice to kind of let it go and not plan everything. And I, I think you're really picking up on... Um, on the major points of the difference between Bhutan and here. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Linda Leeming. She was born in Tennessee, but now lives in Bhutan, a country that's rich with natural beauty and sometimes called the happiest place on earth. Linda moved there to teach English and to get out of the rat race. Her latest book is Married to Bhutan, How One Woman Got Lost, Said I Do, and Found Bliss. And she's sharing her adventures through Bhutanese customs right now on Travel with Rick Steves. So, Linda, you married Namgay, and uh, tell us just uh, quickly how your relationship uh, started and, and how it grew and, and what were some of the challenges. We were co-workers. We, we taught at the, the Bhutanese uh, name is the Zorag Chusum, the School of 13 Arts. He's a painter, a, a traditional Tonka painter. He paints Buddhist iconography, Buddhas and clouds and trees. I was in English. I was the English teacher there, and we became friends. We taught each other English and Zonka, and I guess the relationship sort of blossomed after a year or so, and we got married. Actually, it's uh, a little more detailed in the book, but like this is radio, so. <laughs> and it was really, really kind of kind of a Victorian courtship. It was so lovely, actually. He was really shy, super shy. He still is. And so I guess there was a bit of a language barrier, to tell you the truth. His English was kind of wonky and my Zonko wasn't much. But I think that really kind of saved us because if we couldn't talk about it, if it wasn't body parts or food or something household, we really didn't have much to say about it. So there was no, um, you know, sort of focus to us. Over the years, of course, we got more communicative and... um the Bhutanese are a lot, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of uh, gesturing. There's a lot of, as I say, they don't talk as much as Americans do. So so you can communicate a lot without talking, honestly. So that's kind of fundamental mm-hmm. to this uh, Bhutanese culture is just not having to jabber away about everything. You're just together. You're, you're, you're sort of content by being tranquil and one. Exactly. And... In the U.S., I think I tended to overanalyze everything. In Bhutan, I just don't have that opportunity. So it is just a lot more relaxing. And there's never, uh, I don't think in our whole marriage, there's ever been a point where we said, okay, well, this isn't working out. Because there's a thing, I guess maybe it's part of Buddhism, is uh, just an inevitability you just deal with what you have, and if it's not great, you know, you you try to make it better, and if it's great, you enjoy. So it, it is a sort of a Buddhist thing, yes. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Linda Leeming. She's the author of Married to Bhutan, How One Woman Got Lost, Said I Do, and Found Bliss. Linda describes lockdown at her Bhutan mountain home overlooking the capital city, Timpu. It's on her website, and that's lindaleeming.com. Linda, did you set out to marry a Bhutanese man, or did you fall in love with Namgay? 
Oh, I think it was, uh, you know, it was a combination of things. I think uh, when we first met, I remember a friend of mine who worked at the UN was saying, you know, what are you doing here? You know, do you have a family here? And I said, no. And she said, um, uh, you don't have anybody? I said, oh, there's this really lovely uh, Tonga painter. Uh, so, so lovely. We teach together and, and we study English and Zonka, but it could never, ever, ever work out because he's, um, you know, he's not traditionally educated and all, and, uh, you know, I mean, he's Bhutanese, and she was from Grenada, the island, and she said, I'm married to a Swiss man, and he makes cheese, and he doesn't speak English, and she said, I don't speak French or German, and I don't know, <laughs> she was, she said, could I tell you, you know, I mean, there's nothing in life that's irreversible, and then I started looking at Namge differently. Of course, I didn't do anything because I was too, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't want to jump into anything. But I think that our love or my feelings for him actually grew after we married, honestly. It mm. was all so different and so mm -hmm. unusual. But as he always used to say, and I guess would still say, even though we're very different, our hearts are the same. And if you're nice people, then you have a chance. Tell us about your first kiss. <laughs> Let me think. How did it happen? Okay. I mean, because that would be. I mean, I I remember looking into the eyes of the living virgin goddess in Kathmandu, and I thought many people oh, have looked yeah. into her eyes, and it's like if you ever broached that physical line where you became intimate, you'd almost burst into flames or something, just beyond your wildest dreams could happen to you. Do you want to venture in there? Was there any trepidation about about going there? For me, there was a lot of trepidation. Yes, there was a lot of trepidation. And honestly, uh, you know, I didn't even put this in the book, but I remember one afternoon we were sitting uh, in the wintertime. It was uh, school was out, school's out in the winter in Bhutan uh, for a couple of months. And we we're sitting in my house and uh, we were we had books kind of spread out. We were sitting on the floor, and there was a book of uh, terms, you know, government terms, shopping, whatever, you know, it was broken down into chapters, and there was a, a government offices, and so he flipped the book over to the government offices, and he pointed down to this place that says, uh, well, in English, it was justice of the peace, and he said, uh, we need this. And justice of the peace means you go and you get married. And I'm like, I didn't, I was like, I was shocked. And I said, um, I said, toop means like, okay. <laughs> and that was kind of it. <laughs> really? And I don't know. the. Wow. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, that was it. And then you're and on then, your way. you know, I just, yes. Yes, we, and then. Is that when you first kissed? For the astrologer. We didn't even kiss then, no. Uh, uh, later on, he said, you know, in Bhutan, it's sort of vague, like when you marry, you don't like have a ceremony, you know, like as long as you cohabit, <laughs> then you're married. Huh. So I think um, a couple of days later, he said, I'm staying here. <laughs> and so that was it. And that was the first <laughs> I'm staying here. And Try maybe other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You are living the most topsy-turvy really world. <laughs> what sort of taboos did you have to navigate that might have been frustrating to you in your Victorian Bhutanese courtship? 
I just sort of didn't do anything. I think American women are a little bit more forward, I guess. Mm. I mean, there's more of a, I guess, equality. But I was so worried about intruding on on his life and his family. You know, when I wrote the book, I wrote a lot of, both of my books, I wrote about our family, our friends, our lives together. But, you know, I put a, uh, I changed their names. I, I felt very protective. I Because I think it's like being the unruly dinner guest that, you know, elbows the red wine glass onto the mm. beautiful white linen tablecloth. I didn't want to do that. And I think that's a really good way to travel in foreign countries, to be in the rest of the world, is just be a good guest. Be aware of uh, where you are and don't overstep. Your husband's mission in his work is to wake people up. What does that mean? And, and yes. are, are, you the, are you the focus of his mission, do you think? Oh, I don't know. I think um, that's a good question. I'll have to ask him and get back to you. But I, I think he wishes that I would be a little more pious and like study Buddhism with a teacher and that sort of thing. Uh, but um, yes, waking up is really, really important in Bhutan, living in the moment and, uh, you know, being aware. His his paintings, You uh, when you look at all of these um, deities, the Buddha, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, um, Guru Rinpoche, who is a saint of Bhutan, or uh, Manjushri, the Knowledge Buddha, or the Medicine Buddha. Whenever you look at one of these deities, like in a temple or wherever you're seeing them, if you're really struck by one of them, uh, say Manjushri, Knowledge Buddha, that means that's your way to enlightenment. So uh, he's really interested in connecting people with the right Buddhas because, um, yeah, that's part of what he does. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Linda Leeming. Her book is Married to Bhutan, How One Woman Got Lost, Said I Do, and Found Bliss. You know, Linda, we're out of time, but I just would love to recognize that most of our listeners won't get to go to Bhutan how can we incorporate a little of Bhutan into our lives even without going there? If that's the, Maybe that's a takeaway from reading your book. What would you wish for people? I would wish for people to have uh, more peace of mind. And I'm not really sure how to tell people how to do that. But I do know that slowing down is, if it's at all possible, that's a good way to start. Um, Bhutan is a place where words like civility, uh, sacrifice, courtesy, they have meaning. And that's what I would say, too, to to get a little Bhutan in your life uh, is to think about those words and to maybe try to try to put some meaning into those words. And also, the most important thing, don't take yourself so seriously. It's so much easier to laugh at yourself than not, and it'll make you a lot happier. Say those three words again slowly so we can all think about them. Civility, sacrifice, and courtesy. Bhutan. Linda Leeming, thanks so much for sharing your experience uh, being married into Bhutan. Thank you so much for having me.
Linda tells us more about the magic she finds in Bhutan with her husband, Namge, and his work as a traditional artist painting and restoring Buddhist temples in Himalayan villages. It's in an extra to today's interview in the notes to this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. 877-333-RICKS, our phone number, as we get ready to enjoy Modernismo in Barcelona, Spain, next on Travel with Rick Steves. As Spain's second-largest city and the capital of the region of Catalonia, Barcelona is a beauty and an enchanting cultural hub. The sparkle and style of its Art Nouveau and Modernismo treasures were created by Picasso, Dali, Miro, and Gaudí when they made the city their home. But before the pandemic, Barcelona's popularity with international tourists was straining the patience of its residents. Spanish tour guide Jorge Roman joins us now to help us plan our time in this masterpiece of a city on the Mediterranean. Our interview was recorded just before the global pandemic interrupted international travel plans. Jorge, thanks for being here. Thank you for calling me. So think of the big picture. You're an American dreaming about going to Barcelona. What are the must-sees of Barcelona, just as a brief overview? Okay, everybody has to go down the Ramblas at least once, you know, starts yeah. in one end. The uh, Ramblas, which, okay. The Ramblas, okay. Uh, down halfway, the Ramblas is the Boqueria Market. Well known, market, yeah, yeah. Famous market, of course, it's a must visit in there. Going down the Ramblas towards the water, uh, you get to the Christopher Columbus Memorial, which was uh, one of the things that they inaugurated by one of the world exhibits that Barcelona had in the past. Okay. And then the harbor, which is a new harbor. Now it's a leisure harbor. Columbus was 500 years ago, but that harbor is very today. Yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, well, the things that uh, when the Olympics happened in Barcelona in 1992, the harbor was extended, and they moved it down a little bit to the south. And thanks because of uh, the Olympics at the time, Barcelona became a world destination for cruise liners. So I didn't realize the cruise port was related to the Olympics. What year were the Olympics? 1992. 1992, because most of the cruises, I mean, it's one of the few starting and ending points for cruises in the Mediterranean. Correct. Huge. And it's a very efficient port. I've used it several times. Mm -hmm. And then also we have the creation of all those, that beautiful series of crescent-shaped beaches, Uh white sand beaches. And it used to be an industrial wasteland. Absolutely. The uh, port of Barcelona, the harbor of Barcelona, was kind of hidden to the city yeah. because, you know, those warehouses that right. are normally in the harbors. Yeah. So people couldn't see the, the water. And they noted them all down, uh, right. except one that today hosts the National History Museum of Catalonia. Oh, okay. So it's a pretty building, yeah. you know, very Arabic-looking in the sense of a uh, red brick thing. Uh, I have to tell you, people in Barcelona, the Olympic Committee in Spain, they decided, hey, are we going to spend so much money building big hotels to have them fill for a couple of weeks, and then after that was going to happen. So they had the idea to hire cruise liners and use them as five-star hotels. Smart idea. And once the Olympics were done, they were gone, but that put Barcelona in the world map for cruise liners. Because you can house 3,000 people on a normal cruise liner. Correct. And you got uh, four of them parked there. That's a lot of hotels. Mm -hmm. That was brilliant. What else do we have as major aspects of Barcelona? Just off the Ramblas, we have the old quarter, right? Yeah. It depends where you go. If you go south from the end of the Ramblas, you go to Montjuic, which is also an attraction. That's Uh, the hill. That's the hill, correct. That's right. And then if you go north, you have the uh, Gothic neighborhood 
which is still intact, almost as it was in the in the Gothic section. So the Gothic quarter, medieval it means seven hundred years old, and the streets are old. In fact, you've got the cathedral there. The cathedral is right there. Many people think that the Sagrada Familia, you know, got this masterpiece, is the cathedral, but it's not. No, it's not. It's a basilica already, and it was consecrated by Benedict the Sixteenth, the Pope. And on my birthday. <laughs> so you're talking in, about the Sagrada Familia. Yeah. So, so first it, of all, in the Gothic Quarter, we have the old Gothic Cathedral. Yeah. And uh, people think that's old, but just next to that is the place of the Roman Temple, reminding that's right. that Barcelona goes back 2,000 years to Roman mm-hmm. times. But you're jumping ahead to the Art Nouveau age 100 years ago. And then we have what I think is the greatest site in Barcelona, the beautiful church by Antoni Gaudí. Sagrada Familia. The That's Sacred the Family, Sagrada mm-hmm. Familia. Sacred Family, correct. I remember putting a hard hat on to visit that thing. Yeah, back, I, remember, and it's still I remember those days. Under yeah. construction. This is my 24th year guiding in total in my life. Yeah. And I remember my early days, I had to go on catwalks all around because yeah. there were only two facades built. And if you wanted to go inside to see how the works were going, yeah. you had to wear a helmet and walk around. And now it's almost done. And actually, that is finally a date that is going to be finished. What and date is that? It's going to be um, 2025. Now, that's the 100th anniversary of the death. Gaudi's death. Gaudi's death. Yeah, uh, that's And correct. Gaudi had this amazing vision, and all of us tourists have been paying a very high price to visit it, but we're contributing to the construction. He committed in his will that uh, he didn't want any public institutions to help the construction, so it was supposed to be constructed only by donations of the people. So the ticket that you pay to go in is mm-hmm. considered a donation. Another curious thing about it is that uh, all the towers are now being not finished but on the way to be finished and the yeah. tallest of the tower is not going to be higher than the mountain of Monjuic, 180 meters above the sea level because that would be defeating God's wow. nature. Now Gaudi was just a, a genius 100 yeah. years ago and they've honored his his vision and uh, accommodated modern taste as well. It's Correct. just a beautiful, beautiful community effort. It's in the in the Middle Ages, routinely you'd start a church knowing you'd never finish it in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. In our lifetime, the same thing happened with this, with this familia. With this church. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jorge Roman. We're talking about Barcelona. Our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Caroline's calling in from Boca Raton in Florida. Caroline, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you, Rick? Doing good. Do you have a thought about the Sagrada Familia we've been talking about with Jorge? I was lucky enough back in 2014 to spend eight nights in Barcelona. Uh huh. And I would highly, highly recommend that before you go see Sagrada Familia, that you search out the Cathedral of the Sea that is from the book Falcones. The author's name was Falcones. Uh huh. They talk about a cathedral that was completed in the lifetime of the architect. And it's about the only cathedral that was ever completed in the lifetime of the architect. And if you were to go into there first and then saw Sagrada Familia, I think you would know where Gaudi got his ideas from. Okay, so this is a book called Cathedral of the Sea. Cathedral of the Sea. The author's name is F-A-L-C-O-N-E-S. Ildefonso Falcones. Yes. Do you know this book? I do. I've read the book. Yeah. And, and what was your take on the book that Caroline is talking uh, about? Caroline, I think you're right. That uh, is very inspiring. The cathedral, that cathedral. Well, in fact, it's not cathedral per se, but it's you know how the locals they call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do believe very much that Gaudi might have got many, many inspirations uh, from right. that place. Yeah. 
Now, Caroline, have you also uh, seen other modernist uh, architecture in the town? Modernist is that Art Nouveau style unique to Catalonia, and Gaudi is the most famous of the modernist architects. Did you see any other of the buildings from that era? I saw most of them, and the one that impressed me the most was the Casa Guell. And Caroline, why was Casa Guell your favorite uh, modernist building to visit after the Sagrada Familia? Because it was Gaudi's first commission, and you just see everything that he that one could imagine being built in one mansion. Oh, yeah. Because so, he was definitely a genius, and it was a fun-loving new style, and it reflected the, uh, the abundance and the cutting-edgeness of, of Barcelonan society of the day. Caroline, thanks for your call. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jorge Roman. We're talking about Barcelona. And we've covered, I think, the essential dimensions of Barcelona. And uh, there's just a lot of uh, character you enjoy on the streets if you understand a little bit about the culture. i got to say, a big issue, Jorge, is the crowds because Barcelona is so trendy. There's so many cruise ships that are starting and ending there, so you've got extra people on board. Everybody wants to go to the same places. I love the Ramblas and La Bocaria. But the fact is, modern business, Airbnb and so on, has really driven away a lot of the people who made these neighborhoods vital and interesting. And now there's people coming in, staying in Airbnb. You are right. Consequently, happening here. the Ramblas is not the local hangout it used to be. It's a, it's a tourist. No, but if you're there, at least you need to walk you once. you got to do it. Just to say, I've been there, I've done that. But you got to remember, if you go to the Bocaria, it's a touristy market. I love it. you got to see it. But if you want a market that is as vital and interesting but less touristy, is there an alternative that you would recommend? There is, and it's uh, not far from Bocaria, only like about five minutes away. It's called Santa Catarina. Santa Catarina? St. Catharines. Okay. Yeah, it's in the middle of the Gothic section, very close to the cathedral, by the way. And uh, as soon as you approach the market, you don't even know that it's a market because you see something weird. It's a wavy colored roof made out of tiles. But once you get in there, you see all the locals just ah, doing their shopping. The, I love that. And it's just neighborhood. What, five minute walk from the cathedral. It's five from the cathedral, maybe 10 from the Bocaria, and in a straight line. Christy's on the line from Martinsville in Saskatchewan. Christy, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Jorge. We loved Barcelona, and it, it was delightful to be there. Um, I was a little bit surprised when I was there at the very mixed feelings toward tourists, and I'd love to hear Jorge talk a little bit about that. We decided one day when we were there, we visited a little bit off the beaten path compared to most people. We stayed in Nude de la Rambla, and we found that we were in a more isolated area, lots more pedestrian streets. And my favorite thing was to go down on, in the cable car to the port. And that was just breathtaking as someone who loves the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. But while we were there, we visited... Um, Jorge may be able to direct me toward the name, but it was a brand, a very old market that had just been renovated after years and years. And the grand opening coincided with when we were there in May of 2018. And so we decided to go for a visit. Well, lo and behold, we walked into the crowd and outside of the market, they were having a huge protest against tourism. Oh, probably was in St. Catherine's Market. And big things that were, you know, big paper mache people made mm-hmm. to look like corpses, like the death of Barcelona because of tourism. And so we just kind of hightailed it out of there. Mm. Uh, but I was very surprised. Uh, the next day we did a beautiful wine tour 
from the one port to the other, and it was on a boat with people from all over the world. It was a beautiful off-the-beaten-path tour. But we were surprised at how some of the locals were were very angsty toward the tourists, and others believed, this is our bread and butter. Barcelona is nothing without it. Okay, you're right. But unfortunately, that's happening all over the world now. I mean, if you go to the big mm. cities in Europe, you know, uh, I mean, traveling nowadays is more affordable for everybody. So Barcelona is a trendy destination, as Rick said a few moments ago. And uh, obviously, if you have hordes of people running in the streets where you grew up and you live all your life, and suddenly you cannot even buy on your local little store because it has disappeared. And now it's just a convenience store for tourists. I would be personally disappointed if I find that, you know. But, uh, hey, you have to pay a little price for what we are doing here. If you want to know, you have to find people that they are nice and you have to find people that are not Mm -hmm. so nice. And maybe they don't want you, but what you say is right. Uh, Barcelona would be nothing without tourism. Well, you know, in fairness, I got to say, Barcelona is uncomfortably crowded. Uh, Christy, did you actually uh, wander down the Ramblas? We did. You know, I found La Ramblas. Everyone said to me, you have to go to La Ramblas. You have to go to La Ramblas. And when we went, hmm. I was actually very disappointed because while it was absolutely worth seeing and, and because of where we stayed, we crossed it very frequently. But I felt like there were other markets in Barcelona that were much more Spanish. So okay, you, you've seen you've seen uh, Las Ramblas, right? That's that uh, what for us we call a traditional market. Uh, that one has become too popular, too touristy. But in Barcelona, you just get out of the touristy area, okay, which mm-hmm. is downtown and the Gothic section, mm-hmm. and every single neighborhood has a similar market. Very important. Yeah. You can a walk. You market. can walk twenty minutes yeah. towards uh, Montjuic, yeah, and there's right. a beautiful neighborhood yeah. off of Ramblas. But you're right, uh, and Christy, it is the neighborhood that makes this character possible. And for those of us who have been going to Barcelona for twenty or thirty years, we remember when the flower market was there for the the people who dropped by after work to bring flowers home, and the bird market was there for the grandmothers to take their granddaughters and buy a bird and in an apartment. There. And they're still there. It, it doesn't quite Absolutely. have the market to keep it as they're still there, but. Maybe in different neighborhoods or something. Yeah, like that's that. right. Correct. Yeah. So uh, uh, Ramblas has changed, uh, but the spirit of the Ramblas lives, as Jorge is mm-hmm. saying, mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit yeah. uh, farther away. Hey, Christy, you went on the cable car. Are you talking about the the cars that dangle over the harbor that go f- from the mountain across the the bay? Yes, exactly right. But it was breathtaking. I have such a love affair with the Mediterranean. I've been to the southern part of France and Italy many, many times. Well, Christy, you were really lucky. For a girl who loves the Mediterranean, it (laughs) was just the most spectacular thing I'd ever seen, and I did not want it to end. I hope more people (laughs) will take advantage of that beautiful view. There is nothing like it. Getting off of the beaten path is more important than ever in Barcelona. Christy, Mm -hmm. thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Jorge. Thank you. Our guide to Barcelona on Travel with Rick Steves is Spanish tour guide Jorge Roman. His Facebook page is Traveling with Jorge. It's a conversation we had just before the pandemic broke out. Let's just finish with just a quick uh, discussion of how we can connect with the local culture, and this is Catalan, uh, as distinct from Spain, uh, if we want to go to one of the bars or one of the tapas bars. Talk about what is distinct about tapas in Catalonia 
and mention a little bit about the vermouth bar scene, because I know that's trendy right now in it Barcelona. It is. It's becoming very trendy now. Uh, one very important thing I to say all the people that come to me is just try to learn uh, three or four ways to say hello to people in the lo local language. In Spain, we're very fortunate that we are a multicultural country, and we have four official languages in Spain. I always say when I'm teaching that you can go to a sandwich shop in Madrid yeah. and see a menu with four languages on it, and they're all Spanish languages. Yeah. And one of them would be Catalan. Catalan. We have the Basque and also the Galician. Yeah. But the, especially in Barcelona, if you just say bon dia, which is good morning in mm -hmm. Catalonian, mm -hmm. believe it or not, instead of saying, oh, good morning, uh, just uh, assuming that they were going to understand you from the first yeah. word, oh. it kind of sounds a little bit rude, okay? But if you say bon dia, um, uh, and then you start speaking, if you can, a few more words, that would be perfect. Uh, you have no idea how many doors that opens. And that is particularly helpful in a city like Barcelona Co yeah. that is getting tired of the noisy tourists that that's say right. good morning. Yes, right. Where's my Coke? Yeah, you that's know? right. If that's you right, can yeah. go low, Local, yep. know a few local words, mm -hmm. use the local tempo, yep. uh, observe, yep. uh, be a cultural chameleon. Mm -hmm. You're, you're, you're going to drink and eat Catalan That's style. Right. And opens a lot of doors and you might get a little bit of an extra attention from the attendant behind the counter. What is a distinctly Catalan dish that you'll have when you go to a bar and you have the tapas? Uh, I mean, tapas, uh, I could I have any of them, you know, but uh, the... Uh, when I say this to the people, they say, oh, but anchovies. Try anchovies. the anchovies in Barcelona. Yeah. Anchovies in Spain, they are nothing to do with the anchovies that you know here in this side right. of, the, of the pond. Because we Atlantic. grew up hating anchovies. Yeah. We say, have a pizza, <laughs> take off the anchovies. And I agree, no, we have these old little um, totally dried up salty yeah. things. Yeah. And uh, also they, uh, they have the fresh anchovies that they've been uh, uh, dipped in vinegar for a few hours and they are cured. That's also anchovies as well. And talking about the vermouth, you know, the vermouth is a fortified one. Wine. And normally it's not a, like a drinking wine with a meal. It's just drink it as an appetizer, whether it is for lunch or dinner. And or the bars, <laughs> they'll, they'll, at these bars that are trendy as vermouth bars, yeah. they have some beautiful appetizers out yep. and the wonderful vermouth yep. and a beautiful atmosphere. It's convivial. Yep. That's right. And believe it or not, even in the touristy areas, in the Gothic section by the Cathedral del Mar, you know, there is one very, very famous in there. They, uh, they've been there now, I think, for about 120 years, the same family running the business. And also I want to, if you allow me, to tell that there is a little uh, drink in Catalonia that not everybody knows, which is not champagne, you know, cava. Yeah, is the cava Spanish? Yeah, it's the same process. Right. Okay, they had to change the name for legal reasons. To so cava. The, the, the people in, that live in Champagne don't want it called Champagne. That's, that's what happened. That. So in Spain, happen. it's the same thing, but cava. Cava, and the drink is a uh, fizzy wine, which is halfway in between regular wine and cava, and they call it Champanet with an X at the beginning, Champanette. Champanette. Yeah, and there are many, many local bars that deserve it. And ah. a glass of that is about 150, two euros. So about $2 for a glass of local, yeah. Yeah. kind of champagne yeah. stuff. And you have to be very careful because it's not very, it's not very hard in alcohol, but okay. if you drink three or four, really cold. You it's say, hot. How nice. Crazy. How yeah. nice. But when you move, then you feel the, the And then alcohol. you roll down yeah, the road. Right. Yeah. Jorge Roman, <laughs> thank you so much for giving us a, an intimate look at a, at a wonderful well city. Home. And yeah. I'll, I hope to see you in Barcelona soon. Yeah. Well, I hope so too. Thank you so much for bringing me. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for studio help to Spotland Productions in Nashville and to Gretchen Strauch for reading our listener travel haiku. 
You can send us yours at ricksteves.com slash radio. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves Europe Bus Tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.